What up? Yeah, let's go. Hey, guys. <laughs> um, I just like, I almost wanted to start dancing a little bit. Like, it's almost a full song that we play during, never mind. Um, I want you guys to think about something with me, and I'm going to tell a little story. But what happens when you lose something? Like, what is your initial reaction to losing things? Because my mom used to tell me, and this is true and it's still true to this day, that is the classic statement of like, you would forget your head if it wasn't attached to your body. That is who I am. I lose things all the time. And then because of who I am as a person, I'm incredibly impatient in trying to find that thing. And I just assume someone stole it which is not true because the reality is I lost it and we misplaced it. And so there's times even like when I'm married, phone wallet keys. Like, I don't know if you all saw that Adam Sandler bit in Netflix. Don't watch it. Brendan Shaken said, don't watch it. But he has a song called phone wallet keys. That is legit. Like those are the three things you need. I lose those things all the time, all the time. Wallet's the worst one. Wallet has everything in it. I used to keep my social security card in my wallet yeah, correct. That's the correct response to that statement. I know it was a terrible idea. I stopped doing that when I lost my wallet for a year and didn't have a social security card. And then a year later, actually, someone brought it back to me and found it on the street lying in a pile of leaves. We're not getting into that story. Loosed up all the time. So there's one time, I, I, Alice, our, our middle child is like three years old. So walking around, saying a few words, she is her father's daughter. And so like super kind of, kind of explorey is, is an extrovert, um, but she's sick. And so I have the privilege of being able to stay home with my three-year-old daughter who's sick. And because she's her father's daughter, she also gets incredibly emotional really easily and really quickly. And so she also, like her father, has meltdowns from time to time, which is okay. It's what we do. We're Geetsons. It's how we operate. Um, and so there's moments and times when I'm like watching her. She's three-year-old. We're at home. The whole day is just hard because she's sick, right? She doesn't feel good. So I kind of am trying to like sympathize, empathize, and never know which word to use in that scenario. And like, try, I feel bad for her because she's sick and she's like dragging and, and, and I, I just, I'm trying to help her. And she doesn't take naps well. And I know like an aspect of getting better, especially when we're sick, is like you need to rest. And so it was just a fight and a battle all morning long to try to get a rest. She didn't take a nap. And then we had lunch, made lunch, and then eventually got her to lay down. And it was just a rough, like, morning, and I was trying to, like, just chill in the afternoon. And I figured, like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm not going to make any dinner. I'm going to order a pizza for dinner tonight. Dad's cooking. That's what happens when Dad cooks. We order food. Um, and so I go online, do the classic thing, order for later, drop it off. It's going to be great. It's going to be beautiful. Get there, order the pizza. need to find my wallet because I need to pay for it. And this is a day where I actually remember seeing my wallet on, the, on our coffee table. Most days, if I've lost my wallet, I don't remember the last time I saw it. This day, I remember seeing it. It was on the table. I call my wife and go, babe, dude, I, I'm, trying, I'm ordering pizza tonight. Sorry I didn't ask. We're just having pizza. It's fine. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. But I can't find my wallet. I need to pay for it. Like, hey, have you seen my wallet? Well, where's the last place you left it? And every time someone says it to me, I want to think, if I knew the last place I left it, I would go there and go find it. <laughs> and this time I said, I thought I left it on the coffee table, but it's not there. I can't remember where I lost it because I lost it. And so I look for 10, 15 minutes, which for me is an eternity. And it's not that long, but for me, it felt like forever. Couldn't find it. I cry, I get frustrated, and I just give up. And I think, all right, whatever. We're not having pizza time. So I go to the kitchen, and I'm cleaning it up. And we have a dishwasher, and how we do it is we usually wait three days until after we run the dishwasher to empty it. So 
dishes pile up, and then we have to just re- that's just how we run our in the geese and household. So I go to empty the dishwasher. I, I bottom first because that's what you're supposed to do. Empty all this stuff, and as I pull open the top, my wallet is sitting in the top of the dishwasher. And immediately I was like, "Praise the Lord!" <laughs> I was like, "God is good. He's never gonna let me down." Um, and immediately I think, like, I didn't put my wallet in the dishwasher. And I figured at some point, my daughter, and I did ask her this when she woke up, but she's three, and I think she just assumed somehow she's going to be in trouble. She wasn't, but she just straight up lied to my face because the only way my dish, the wallet got in the dishwasher is she must have grabbed it from the kitchen table and put it in the dishwasher and closed the dish. I don't understand how it worked. All I know is I didn't do it. But for those 15 minutes I searched and then the hours where I just sat on the couch frustrated because I didn't know where my wallet was and we weren't going to have pizza and I actually had to cook food. I was like distraught. I get frustrated really, really easy when something is lost, especially something that has great value. And so when we're talking about tonight, specifically ending our series with the one, Brennan gave me the opportunity to choose between a couple stories found in Luke 15. And in Luke 15, what we get is three incredible parables that Jesus tells, all with this main idea that God loves the lost. And then in each story, there's specific, like, intricate, beautiful details that give us a little bit more um, different details about the character of God and the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. But all of them give this big picture idea of how God loves the lost. We get a story of the lost sheep. We get the story of the lost coin and a story that most people call the prodigal son, which is really the lost son. It's actually really great. Again, all three incredible stories. We're going to focus on the middle one, the lost coin. And before we get there, I want to set up just the context of Luke, or, or in Luke of Jesus telling these stories. And we get it immediately in Luke 15, 1-2. So if you have your Bible, open it up. Otherwise, it's going to be on the screen. It says this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, and now some versions say notorious sinners. So it's like, you're the bad. Like, you know these people are sinners. They are not great. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So get this, in this scenario, what we have is a wide spectrum of people who are about to hear the three stories, the three parables that Jesus is going to tell. On one side, you have the people who literally have come to sit and eat with Jesus and to hear him teach, which I think why food in Jesus makes sense. And they come in and they're the sinners and the tax collectors. The people that, that the Jewish leaders, the leaders of the law, the leaders of the Jewish faith would see and look at as like this despicable people that you shouldn't spend time with. Those are the people that Jesus is hanging out with. But at the same time, Jesus knows, because of what we see, that the Pharisees can also hear him because they're muttering. And Jesus hears them mutter, this man sits and eats with sinners, with tax collectors, with prostitutes. And they're frustrated and they mumble and they're angry. And so when Jesus tells these stories, here's what he's doing. He's telling it to people, one, who need to change how they view people and how they see people, the Pharisees, religious leaders of the law. And he's telling the story to people who need to recognize and see how God sees them. Tonight as we go through and as I go through this sermon, I want you to try to, and I'm going to try to do this, 
as we go along, but put yourself in both scenarios. Not that you're a Pharisee and you see people as evil, and maybe you do, and God's going to do a work in your soul and your heart tonight. But see yourself one as I share this. This is how God sees you. And on the other side, I want you to be challenged with or encouraged by, depending on where you're at now, with how do you see people? And what is God asking you to do to be a part of finding the lost? So the parable of the lost coin, starting in verse 8 here in Luke 15. says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Here's our big idea. God's unrelenting love and persistent pursuit of us should and does create a desire in us for others to be found. As we recognize the love that God has shown and sees us with and his pursuit of us, it creates within us a desire to pursue and to love the people in our sphere of influence, our friends, our families, our neighbors. Once we understand God's love and his pursuit of us, it gives us a desire for others to be found. I have two points. The second point has five subpoints. We'll get there in a little bit, but I have two main points. Thank you for laughing at that. The first point is this. To the woman who represents God, who represents Jesus in this scenario, the silver was precious. The silver was precious. And I somehow had like this weird-looking 1921 silver dollar at, at my house. I don't know what it's worth. Anywhere from, I tried looking it up, anywhere from $25 to $44,000. It's not the latter, because if it's the latter, I would have done more research, I think. <laughs> I also don't care that much. Maybe I should. It doesn't matter. But imagine a coin like this. And this is why the silver was precious for this woman. It said she had 10 coins. Now, back in this day, it was normal, incredibly normal, for married women who had head coverings, they had their their head covered because that was the culture of the day, they would have a headband that had 10 silver coins attached to it. And it represented literally what the wedding ring represents to us today. It told the world that she was married, that she had committed her life to another man and that She was with someone for life. See, this headband would be given to her as a gift, usually from her father, as she leaves her home and starts a new family with her husband. And so to lose one of these coins would be like losing a wedding ring. Talk to my wife about times where she's thought she's lost her wedding ring. There was a moment where even she didn't lose the whole ring, but the diamond fell out and she freaked out. Because it wasn't just that it was super valuable and it literally has some sort of worth. It's what it represented. You see, the silver was precious because for her, there was more value than what the simple silver coin was worth. And what they said it was worth was about one coin was a day's wages. So she had 10 days wages. It represented her being married. It was like the wedding ring of their day. The second thing that it indicated was that the coins declared her independence. Because it was a gift given to the woman by her father, if she were to ever get divorced, she would, this, those bands of coins, those coins would be hers. To start a new life, to get set on the right path, the husband knew 
he couldn't touch those coins. They were hers. So they were also a sign of her independence. They were literally sometimes her sole possession. The silver was precious to her. And so she lost one. And another thing that even culturally and in some commentaries it says is most likely because there was only 10 coins, one, because she searched by herself, she was either widowed or divorced. Two, because there was only 10, she was most likely really poor because that's all that was offered. They said a lot of times in wealthy families, headbands would have up to a couple dozen coins and it was an indicator of wealth. So all she has are these 10 coins. It represented so many things other than just money. And so she freaked out, kind of. And by freaked out, she meant it had so much value, she did everything in her power to try to find it. The coin was precious. So number one, for us, what does this mean? Do you know how precious you are in God's eyes? Do you know how God sees you. He calls you, Psalm 139 says, as he knit you together in your mother's womb, he looks at you, sees you, and he calls you wonderful and beautiful. That's how God sees you. He has so much and sees so much value in you that he created you in his own image. That's how God sees you. Now for the other side. How do you see other people? Are other people precious? Despite race, religion, location of where they're from, geographically, socioeconomically, what they have or do not have, sexual orientation? How do you just value and see people? Do you see them as ones who were created in the image of God like Genesis 1 tells us? How do you see people? Jesus goes on to say that God sees every person as having great value. The Lord feels incredible sadness when anyone is lost. And he longs for them to return. And we see this in Luke 19, 10, where it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. There is a small church in rural South Dakota that, again, small church, small town, had maybe like 80 to 100 people who were coming to this church from all like surrounding areas in different towns coming to this church. Small church. And in this small church, there were some parents who had middle school, high school age kids. And they prioritized and loved Jesus so much and loved their kids so much that they knew that they needed to have an environment for the kids to be able to grow in their faith. So the parents, because it was was a solo pastor there, he was doing a lot of work, he was really great, but he just couldn't add like a youth group and a youth service. And so the parents decided, hey, we're going to start a youth group. And so they volunteered to start running this youth group for the kids in the church. And all of a sudden what happened, because they prioritized and loved Jesus, they valued their own kids, which makes sense. A lot of other kids from the surrounding area started coming to this youth group. And all of a sudden, what was value and preciousness that they saw in their own children, they started having for the kids around them. They started to, to see a yearning and a seeking after wanting to know Jesus. And in that little group, that there's, there's two kids who, who came out of it, two of their two kids whose parents were actually the leaders. And because of how the parents discipled their kids and discipled the youth group, they came out of that, graduating high school, going to college with a desire for Jesus. They love God, 
and a desire and love for people that was precious. So much so that their first week that they were at college, everyone that they would run into, that they would get to know, they'd invite to church. Because for them, their priority was Jesus. And they value people so much that they knew the thing you can't miss in your life is Jesus. Because they prioritized Jesus, they prioritized people. They cared about what happened to people, especially in their faith. How do you value and see people? The second point that has five subpoints is the how about we go do, how about God did this for us in finding the lost, and I think a challenge of how we need to go about doing it. So this is like the how does God search, and what does that mean? The search was prudent. And prudence is like a weird word, because usually it's meant like economically and for money, because literally... The, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's solely meant for money, but I don't care. I like P words. I wanted to use a P word. This one makes sense. Because prudent means careful. It means diligent. It means intentional. The search wasn't like me trying to find my wallet crazy and then I give up after the, but it was intentional. It was wise. It was smart. Another word to say, like, it, it was thrifty. Incredibly Intentional and how the search went about. And so what do we see as we look at scripture? And in verse eight, it says, or suppose a woman, 10 coins, loses one. What she do first? She, she lights a lamp. Think about this house. There's a house, right? First century Christian house or Jewish house. It's gonna be potentially small. A room that she's in most likely has no windows, no electricity, Telling us that she lit a lamp tells us that it was most likely night. Because even if it was a one-bedroom style home, there would be a door opening that would have a little light during the daytime, but still wouldn't light up the entire room. So no, why don't you go ahead and throw up that picture? And so the lamp that she lit looks something like this. I tried to find like an Aladdin lamp and just rub it and see if a genie come out and didn't work. Couldn't find anything. But that's what it looked like. And so what happened is she used resources, and she was most likely poor. She used resources of oil, lit it, because that was the preciousness that she saw in the silver. And so for me, I think, okay, room small, lights a lamp. If it's like this, it pro even if it's really dark, it lights up the room, but there's still going to be crevices and points where it's not going to be able to light up absolutely everything. But it's still enough. So what does the light mean? I think of a lot of different things, right? we got Psalm 119 says, your word is a light into my path. So we recognize that the scripture gives us guidance. As we look, as we, again, as we look at scripture, Psalm 118 says, it says this, you Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. That Jesus is, he says he's the light of the world. But there's one thing that I want to get to when it comes to us understanding what God did in us to help us be found and what I think he wants us to understand. And as we are part of the advancement of the kingdom of God and having others be found, is God illuminates our soul and prepares us to hear the gospel before we even hear about Jesus. In John 1, 9, you can go ahead and throw it up. No, it says this, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. A few verses after this one, it talks about how the Jewish people had rejected Jesus, but then those who had received him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children. But before that, it says, the true light, Jesus, gives light to everyone. Here's what this means. God does a work in every single human being, in every single soul, in every person, inviting them into understanding or even opening it up an understanding to know Jesus. John Wesley, 
Some would say the father of, of the Wesleyan denomination, which we're a part of. He was the father of the Methodist movement, leader of that, which is where we get the Wesleyan denomination. He called this prevenient grace. It was an act of God and a work of grace where God went before and was moving in people's soul to help them prepare to hear the gospel. Literally, John Wesley defines it like this. He says, prevenient grace is the presence and power of God in time and space, in all places and all times, preparing the world and every person for the hearing of the gospel. Here's how I define evangelism. If you've been around me the last couple of years, you'll, you'll know this, or you've heard this. Evangelism is simply us stepping into a conversation that God is already having with someone. To understand the lighting of a lamp that God illuminates and lights up people's souls to hear the gospel. It has to have a recognition for us that God is already having conversations with the people he's called us to. God is already having conversations. He's already moving in the souls and the hearts of the people that are in our lives. Before you came to know Jesus, he was doing a work to prepare you to be able to hear the gospel to prepare you to be able to give your life fully to Jesus, to say yes and amen to the promises of Christ. And so in that, I believe, since the search was prudent, the first step in that is we need to be prayerful. If evangelism is us stepping into a conversation God's already having, we need to be praying and having an understanding, being in communion with God to be able to recognize, okay, what's, what's going on here? What is God doing here? And it's praying in so many ways. It's, it's praying that God would give us boldness to be able to preach and, and speak the truth of Jesus, to speak encouragement and empowerment to other people, to point them to Jesus. It's praying that God would soften the hearts to be able to receive the true word of the gospel and what that means and what that is, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's praying that Satan would not be able to deceive or destroy or confuse. But it's also this. It's praying alongside of each other with the person or for the person that God has called us to. We talk about this idea of the one. A lot of you wrote down names on prayer cards. A beautiful aspect about the church and about God finding the lost is he doesn't ask us to do it alone. Those same two roommates who came uh, to college came and, and were called to this one person and this one person, both of them just had an immediate, like, fixate. Like, it was not just that this guy was funny or cool. It was like, there was an obvious brokenness about a guy that they started to get to know. And so, like, they felt literally called to the one, this one person. And so what they did is they go back home to their youth group leaders, who were their parents, and tell their parents, hey, tell the youth group to pray for this kid. He needs Jesus. Do you know that God is at work already in the lives of the people he's calling you to? How are you praying for them? How is he asking you to pray for them? The second thing that we see happens is she lights the lamp and then she sweeps the house. And if you're like me, I'm not a big sweeper. I like folding laundry. Sweeping, not a fan. Mopping, definitely not a fan. And so like I have like a few modes of sweeping and my daughter does this too. It's, it's so funny. We have like a if I really like want to serve my wife, I should want to serve my wife all the time. I get that. But like there's moments I get into where it's like, no, I'm going to do everything she says and it's going to be better than what she expects because usually it's not great when it comes to me cleaning things. 
So it's like I get on the ground and I find every piece and I like, and I sweep and I'm diligent and I'm careful about it and I'm just sweeping and I make sure I'm getting every little thing. And then there's moments that I get emotional and I'm just not feeling it where I just go like this and I'm just. And then there's moments because I'm a psycho that my personality gets in the way and then I just go. (laughs) And my daughter does this exact same thing. I'm not going to go to that story because I'm not going to have time. But I get in these modes. Think about this house. It's dark, potentially, even if the the light is lit. The floors are not like our floors. Most likely what happened in in building these houses is they would put stones as flooring, and they would try to fill the cracks in between with some sort of dirt or mud to fill it up, but it always wouldn't, wouldn't settle, and it wouldn't stay flat. So if you lose a coin, most likely it's going to get stuck in the crevice. If it's dark, what you can't do is sweep everything just to be able to find it. What she had to do was be able to sweep carefully in our second step, patiently, because she wasn't trying to find it with her eyes. She was trying to listen before it rattle. So she needed to be patient in her sweeping. She had to be patient in being able to hear it rattle in order for the coin to be found. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God was slow with us and patient with us. I've known Jesus for 14 years. I have, that's less than me not knowing Jesus because I didn't know Jesus for 19. I have more years in my life where I didn't know Jesus, where I wasn't saved, where I wasn't living for him than I do with years that I have been. He was patient. He's been patient with every single one of us, even if you've given your life to Jesus at three. In that, recognize the patience of God has given you and have that patience towards the people that are in your life that he's calling you to. It's patience to recognize you don't know the whole story. It's patience to understand you don't know fully what's happening in the person's life. It's patience Sorry. It's patience to not get frustrated or angry at a decline of an invitation to come to church. It's patience to not get mad at the person that you desperately want to know Jesus. Because there's more to their story than maybe what you know. There was times where these two roommates who had come, who, who had been called to this one, that they would go, he, he would call them and they they would go pick him up from parties and he would just be drinking and, and being an idiot. And there would be times where he would come stumbling in drunk on a Saturday night and go into their room because he thought it was his room, but it wasn't. He'd go into their room and just like lay on the couch and turn the light on, but it would wake them up. And so in their patience, they were willing to be like incredible with like just, again, being patient with the person. They would stay up having long conversations when life was just crap and garbage. They were available at the most intricate times. And in their patience, they weren't pushy. They didn't force anything. They had an urgency because the person was precious in God's eyes and in theirs. 
but they were patient because they knew that it wasn't within their power to save the person or to find the lost. God does the work, and he does the movement. The third thing that happens of what scripture says is that she searched carefully or diligently, and I want you to know this. She knew the goal, right? The goal was, very simply, find the lost coin. Amen? Oh, boy, I lost you. The goal is find the lost coin. Amen? Oh, love you guys. So what's our goal? The third P word, third step, is we have to understand the purpose. And I think Jesus declares it incredibly well in this story at the end of it. He tells us the purpose. He says this. In the same way I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Second Peter 3.9 just read, said, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach what? Repentance. The purpose was more than just a one-time yes to an invitation to receive Jesus. It was more than just a moment. Repentance is lifestyle change. Repentance is denying self and desiring Jesus in every area of life. That is the goal. That is the purpose. So when we see people in our life, know God's desire for you when you created you was that you would be in relationship with him. Sin screwed that up. Jesus rescued us. And now in that, repentance is to say, okay, Jesus, I'm all yours. When Romans 10 says this, um, oh, I lost it, there it is. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, not just Savior, not a punch ticket to get to heaven, but Lord of every area of life. That's repentance, it's saying denying self, desiring Jesus in all areas of my life. That is the purpose. It's not just, and I'm not saying you don't share the gospel. I'm not saying you don't declare the goodness of what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection. I'm not saying you don't even understand that for yourself, that you're able to praise and give worship because of what God's done for you. If you are in a moment with the one that Jesus has called you to, to share the gospel, and they do, and they say, yes, awesome, that's not the end. It's then, okay, what does it look like to continue because you value them to see them maybe getting a part of, a, involved in a community of people, to continue to be a part of their life where they are, because it sometimes happens over time, it's not always this simple, where they finally give their whole life to Jesus and say, yes, I'm yours. Do we understand the end goal? The fourth one, it says, she lit the lamp, swept the house. She searched carefully until she found it. The fourth step is persistence. She never gave up. That is God's heart for you. He never gives up. He is for you and not against you. His love for you can never be separated by anything in this world. First Timothy 2 says he desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. Don't give up on the person that God has called you to. When we value people as precious the way God does, we won't give up. When we pray, God reminds us that he is working and moving in their life and that you give us encouragement to continue to move on. Keep praying. Keep asking. Keep inviting them to church. Keep being a part of their life. And recognize and know that seasons do change in this. 
How I'm persistent with my mother who doesn't know Jesus has changed at 33-year-old, as a guy who was married with three kids than it did when I was 19-year-old as a freshman in college. That doesn't mean I've given up. I continue to pray. Every time we meet, I talk about where she's going to church or ask her where she's going to church. I share the gospel with her more times than I can count. I don't give up. And with the persistence comes an understanding there's a healthy burden and healthy urgency because again, it's not my power that saves her. It's God. So I can be persistent. I can be faithful to keep asking because God is in control. He's just asking me to be faithful. He's not asking me to save lives because I can't. He's just asking you to be faithful because there have been people who've been faithful to you. God has never given up on you. So these two roommates, they just kept asking. <laughs> they kept asking. There was moments where the guy got really annoyed and frustrated. But then there was moments where he recognized they care so much about him going to church that something must be different. Like, why do they keep asking? And then there was one day that this kid who just needed Jesus was just at his wits end. He didn't know what else to do. And because the two roommates were persistent, they never gave up. Sunday afternoon, they came, they knocked on the dorm, and they asked him again, hey, you want to come to church? And they didn't know what had just happened in this kid's life. He had just gotten a phone call from parents. Life was falling apart. Everything was falling apart. They didn't know that side. They just were persistent and faithful when God asked them to do something. Invite him to church, and he said yes. Probably weren't expecting him to say yes, but he said yes because they were prayerful. They were patient. They understood their purpose and they were persistent. He said yes, he went to church. And that night, I gave my life to Jesus. Because two kids who come from a small church were prayerful, patient, persistent, and understood the purpose. They never gave up. Oh, I'm alive right now. I wouldn't be alive today if they hadn't been faithful into doing what God was asking him to do and pursuing well and finding preciousness in my life because of what God had done in theirs. I have three kids at home right now who are alive and we're trying to get them to know Jesus and Wesley is asking incredible questions and they love coming to church because two people were persistent and patient and prayerful and understood the purpose. And then what happens at the end of it is the fifth step is we get to praise. So she found the lost coin and she went to her neighbors and invited them in. And said, rejoice with me for what was lost is now found. And then immediately in verse 10, he moves it from the story of the woman who lost the coin to heaven. We're saying, I tell you this, even in heaven, angels of God rejoice over one sinner who repents. When you gave your life to Jesus, when you surrendered to him, when you said, confess Jesus that you were Lord and believe you were risen from the dead, at that moment there was a party in heaven and he's been continuing to pursue you and then he's put people in your life that he's asking you to be faithful to. So I don't know where you're at tonight. I hope you understand and know God's heart for you. Do you know you're precious in his eyes? If you have not 
And it's more than just saying yes to Jesus. If you have not believed and repented, Jesus said, uh, <laughs> oh, so I just, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Maybe tonight, the first time in your life, you want to say, you know what, I'm going to deny myself, Jesus, and I'm going to desire you in everything, in every aspect of life. Do you know God created you to be in relationship with you? That sin broke that relationship, that Jesus' death paid for your sin that you were supposed to pay for. And the power of his resurrection proved everything that Jesus said and who he is is true. It's true. And you can experience life now with him. If you believe that tonight and have not believed and repented, I ask that you do so now. Would you, if you have a card, write your name on a card, write, I, I, I believe and repent tonight so we can pray for you. And then the second step, maybe you know who God has called you to. And what's awesome is you can give your life tonight to Jesus and still have someone that Jesus has called you to. And again, last week, Brennan had you write down these names. No, you can throw up that slide. Team, you can come on up. Uh, as the slide gets written up, they're going to play a music for a couple minutes. Hopefully it comes up. And these are things that you can even just now, sometime this week, for the rest of your life, just, and this is not an exhaustive list of here's how to exactly pray perfectly and the person you were called to is going to know Jesus. These are things that you can pray now. Things that you can be called to as a follower of Jesus to recognize the person that God has placed in your life. Here are things you can pray for. But alongside that, not just how is God asking you to pray for that person, it's how is God asking you to be patient? Maybe you don't know the whole story. Do you understand the purpose and the goal? Not just a once-time experience of saying yes to Jesus. It's more than that. It's belief. It's complete trust. It's repentance to deny self and turn and run towards Jesus. A lifestyle change. How is he asking you to be persistent? Wrestle with that. Pray about that. Ask God to move in your soul in that. And as a team plays, just for a few seconds, man, take a picture of this. You need to write them down. I don't care what it is. How is God asking you to pray for the one he's called you to? Or if you're here tonight and need to be reminded, I pray that you know God's heart for you, the value he sees in you, and how he proved that in sending Jesus his only son, our king, our Lord, and our God to die on the cross for you. Believe, turn to him, run after him, surrender to him. Father God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your pursuit of us and never giving up. Thank you that it's nothing on our part that saves us. To come to the knowledge of of saving faith in you is a work you do in us first. And all you require of us is to confess Jesus that you are Lord, to believe God that you raised him from the dead, that through his death, he paid for our sin. And in confessing sin, in repenting, which is denying self and desiring you in every area of our life, you say we're saved. Thank you. Thank you for that reality and truth. For the people that you've impressed in our heart, the ones that you've called us to, 
Help us to know how you're asking us to move in the next step, in the next area of being a part of you finding the lost. Thank you that you give us a healthy urgency and burden just to be faithful. Not, and to understand that we, we don't change people. It's your power. It's your working. It's your moving. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.